On December 19, 1965, on the front page of the local section of Lynchburg's morning newspaper was a headline. The headline and the story beneath it were tucked between articles about a new bridge being built in Alta Vista, giving paper money as Christmas presents, accident-prone intersections, and how local doctors were workaholics. This headline, almost obscured by other news of the day, read as follows. Blaze claims life of Negro woman 62. The News, Lynchburg, Virginia, December 19, 1965. A Taylor Street fire early Saturday night claimed the life of a 62-year-old Negro woman and substantially damaged the brick home in which she lived. Dead in the 628 p.m. blaze at 401 Taylor Street is Mrs. Lottie Stratton. The fire, according to Lynchburg firemen, lasted about two hours and 20 minutes. It started in a small room of the brick structure, which contained a cot and some cabinets, firemen said. The woman's body was found about four feet from the cot, and firemen surmised she had tried to find her way to the door, but was overcome with smoke. The room was charred, the bed was destroyed, and the floor beneath the bed was burned completely through, according to a spokesman for the fire department. Engine companies three and seven and the chief's car responded to the blaze. No other injuries were reported. There was no mention in the article about exactly who Lottie Stratton was other than Negro Woman 62. Little did they know, these firemen who recovered Lottie's lifeless body from her home's charred remains that she was Miss Booney. Who was Miss Booney? Miss Booney was a woman who made Saturday mornings magical for generations of African-American children from the 1930s to the 1950s. During that time, she was the cashier for what was called the Academy of Music. Located on the north side of Main Street between 5th and 6th Streets, the Academy was built in 1905. The bow art style structure was designed by Fry and Chesterman, a prominent local architecture firm of the day. On January 5th, nearly a month before the theater opened, the Lynchburg News was already bragging about it. That the city is going to have the prettiest opera house in the state and among the prettiest in the entire South is the claim of a number of persons who have seen the work of decorating the local house and who have also seen most of the playhouses of the southern states. There is in store a rich treat upon the opening of the building for the lovers of things theatrical, because few persons in the city have the slightest idea of the beautiful work that is being done on the building. The Academy of Music opened on Wednesday evening, February 1st, 1905, with the musical comedy, The Showgirl, starring Stella Mayhew. About 800 people attended the performance. The next morning, a story about the theater's opening night took up almost two full columns of the newspaper's front page. To say the least, it was a successful night for the Academy of Music. When the curtain rose on the first act, it was evident as the audience was inclined to be critical. But as the performance progressed, this was forgotten. And if one is to judge the appreciation of the audience by its applause, laughter, and frequent and continued encores, then Miss Stella Mayhew in The Showgirl made a decided hit in the Hill City. 
The bill in its entirety was all that was claimed for it, a jolly lot of tomfoolery that kept the audience guessing, laughing, and applauding for more than two hours. From 1905 until 1958, when the Academy of Music closed its doors, the theater hosted a dizzying variety of shows. Everything from ragtime pianist Eubie Blake and actress Ethel Barrymore to cowboy movie star Tom Mix. Local dance teacher Floyd Ward, who taught generations of Lynchburg children to dance at her Church Street studio, held her annual reviews at the Academy too. At the Academy, Miss Booney worked in a tiny upstairs room, two flights up from the theater's Fifth Street entrance. The room was painted in a rose color and furnished with little more than a simple blue painted chair. There, for about 30 years, Miss Booney sold tickets for the segregated balcony, the only place African-Americans were allowed to sit at the theater. This was how things were at that time all over the city and all over the South. To be sure, Lottie was no stranger to Jim Crow. I was working there as the cashier for the color balcony. You see, when whites wanted to go see a show or a movie at the Grand Theater, they get to use the front door entrance and could sit in any seat they wanted. But color folks, they'd have to enter through a covered entrance off Fifth on the side street and walk all the way up two long flights of steps in the back of the theater, where they'd eventually come to me. I had a little nook in the wall that acted as a segregated box office, and I'd take people's money. It was the 1930s when I started, and a ticket to the color section to see a movie was 10 cents. I'd give them a ticket and motion people to go around the corner and up another flight of steps, and that's where the segregated balcony was. And let me tell you, once they climbed all those stairs, those seats were high up. They were far away from everyone, and you could barely see if there was a live show. So not many of my people came and watched unless there was someone special like Yubi Blake or W.C. Handy were on stage. But when they were showing a movie, the screen hit right about here, and the view was heavenly. So much so, there was no way I could keep it all to myself. At some point, Miss Spoony started letting black children into the movies for free. Was it an act of civil disobedience or a simple act of kindness performed by a woman with no children of her own? It's easy to imagine it was a bit of both. I've yearned for little ones of my own for as long as I can recall. But God decided he had a different plan in store for me and Lawrence, my husband. Though it took a long time to accept his purpose for us and a lot of pain too. I'm sure there are plenty of you that, that know that aching emptiness. Don't it seem the people that want babies the most can't have them? And after a while, I realized it was the trying, the always trying, was not getting anywhere. It hurt more than not having them. So we stopped. 
and we decided that we were going to do something for those that God had chosen to put around us. Lord, did we dote on the children of this city. We had a house at 401 Taylor Street, and it seemed we always had some young and knocking on our door, looking for some of my fresh-baked mulberry pie, red velvet cake, or homemade ice cream. Yes, sir. Everyone knew you could get the best sweets from Miss Booney's house, but what really made them angels happy was Saturday afternoons at the Academy of Music down on Main. I don't know why I started letting the children in for free. I was thankful for my job, and Jim Crow was a part of life. I won't try to make any statement or right some sort of wrong. Maybe it came down to me knowing that 10 cents was a lot of money for their families. The little kids wouldn't have been able to see those movies any other way, and they should have, because you know how movies can take you away, make you forget about your lot in life. Like the cards you got dealt, get reshuffled just for a bit in the dark when you see that magic coming from the projector. I remember the wide-eyed looks of a few children from my block when they saw one of the serials hop along Cassidy and how tears almost came from my eyes when, when I watched them later that evening acting out all the scenes playing cowboys in the street. For black folks, that feeling anything was possible didn't happen much for us. But I know it did every Saturday for a while at least. It went on like that for years. But then, as all good things must do, in 1958, the academy closed its doors. I went on to work in the cafeteria at Dunbar High School, which I didn't mind since I got to see the children a lot more. Miss Spoonie worked at Dunbar High School until December 18, 1965, the day of the fire that took her life. On that evening, Lawrence was still at work at the Firestone Service Center, where he was a mechanic. One might imagine Miss Booney at home on Taylor Street, reading and waiting up for him. I liked to light a candle in the evening before I would go to bed. I'd read the Bible by it mostly, but that night I was enjoying a story in the Reader's Digest. Sometimes scripture isn't always the best thing to fall asleep to, especially when you're lonely. Lawrence was still at work, and I, I was always real good about snuffing the flame out when I was done. But it had been a rather hard day. Plus, it was December the 18th and getting real close to Christmas, and I always got a little more in need of reading for company. So I accidentally fell asleep with the book still in my hand. I don't know how that still lit candle got knocked over onto my bed, but I remember waking up to nothing but heat. It was pitch dark and, and, and I was so confused. I struggled to get out of bed, but only made it a few steps before the smoke overtook me. And, and then, just like the end of a show, everything went black.
According to her death certificate, Lottie Stratton died of asphyxiation due to smoke inhalation. As mentioned before, her death received only cursory notice in the local newspaper. In Lynchburg, during the Civil Rights Movement and beforehand, the local paper wasn't kind to African Americans. Unless you committed a crime or died in some spectacular manner, your name wasn't likely to appear on its pages. And if an African-American person was mentioned for any other reason, the word Negro or colored was printed after their name. It was always comma Negro or comma colored. The New Journal and Guide, a Norfolk newspaper, was known for printing Lynchburg's African-American news, however. On January 8th, 1966, that newspaper printed a lengthier, more personal, and dignified remembrance of Lottie under the headline, Mrs. Lottie P. Stratton Dies in Lynchburg. Mrs. Lottie P. Stratton was given final rites recently at Court Street Baptist Church. The Reverend Paul Warren officiated and the church choir furnished music. Mrs. Stratton died after a fire at her home at 401 Taylor Street. She was a member of the Amity Bridge Club and was on a dietitian staff at Dunbar High School. Flower bearers were Madame Drusilla Moultrie, Cordelia Penn, Lillian White, Sophronia Leith, Edith Davis, Kathleen Manns, and Alice King. Honorary pallbearers were Sherman Washington, Lee Johnson, Manson Brown, Silas Cardwell, James Harvey, and John Hughes. Active pallbearers were J.C. Moultrie, G.E. Hughes, N.O. White, O.M. Washington, Mason Brown, and Alan Burton. Out-of-towners attending were Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Jefferson of Washington, D.C., Mrs. Vashti Higginbotham of New York City, Mrs. Fannie Mae Woodruff, Mrs. Othella Starlings of Agricola, Virginia, Dr. Carol Jackson of Washington, D.C., and Dr. Clifton Jackson of Hampton, Virginia. Miss Booney's husband, Lawrence, died a few years later in 1969. The house at 401 Taylor Street was torn down. Eventually, 401 Taylor Street became the address of Old City Cemetery, where Miss Booney and Lawrence are buried side by side. I'm Ted Delaney, director of the Lynchburg Museum System, and I'm joined now by Amanda Adams, architect with CJMW Architecture and project manager for the restoration of the Academy Center of the Arts here in Lynchburg. We also have here with us Jeffrey Kirshner, executive director of the Academy Center of the Arts. Let me start with you, Amanda. What does Lottie Stratton mean to you? Why is she important? I think she's just this incredible connection to the community as well as to the African-American community for the Academy. Um, we have actually some of the most personal and intimate details of her life, more so than maybe anyone else that worked at the Academy. 
it all started with that blue chair of hers, uh, which was a very special artifact. Jeff, I'll ask you the same thing. Well, you know, for us, I think, you know, history is, is very often written by those that are in positions of power. And uh, certainly if you were black in America uh, during the time that the theater was open, uh, you, you were likely not in much of a place to, to be writing the, the history that ended up in the history book. So we don't know a lot about actually the, the specifics of what that segregated experience was. Um, and it's not particularly well documented because their voices weren't necessarily heard. So what's really incredible, and as Amanda said, you know, that we, we have all this information on Lottie that's really unique. And so we're able to have a name and a face and an individual uh, that we can associate with that time that I think is really special. And it's a connection point to something that's really hard to connect to. You know, very often people will ask us specific questions about that second balcony. It's very often hard to answer uh, questions, but we can always uh, talk about Lottie and who she was and what she did. And it, and it helps personify the space, which I think is really helpful to us. How exactly did you preserve Mrs. Stratton's story in the restoration of the historic theater? Specifically, what did you want people to see or experience that you then translated into the restoration? Well, one of the things is that the segregated box office, her, her working space, actually was a perfect utilities route location. And early on, we made the decision that we are not going to desecrate the space with air conditioning ducts. And that took a lot of work to make that happen. We had to make some really long ducting routes to avoid that area. But so often in, and, and this is sad that the Academy set for 60 years before she reopened, but in a sense, when she was abandoned in 1958, she was segregated. And then because nothing happened in the theater, all of that painful experience was actually preserved. The, the alley connection, the route up the stairs, the, the segregated box office, right down to her blue chair. I mean, she collected her last paycheck and her purse and walked out of that space. So what a rare and unique find to have that whole route preserved. And so we very much, as the architectural firm and design team, we did not want that to be destroyed. And we, we didn't know exactly how it would all work out, but we knew somehow, some way, we wanted people to be able to walk that route if they wanted to, to get that experience. Jeff, how did the social history of the theater first come up in discussions about the restoration? When was the first time that came, became an issue and that was on the table? So my personal experience with the theater taught me a lot about, you know, what an audience member's experience probably was, you know, at the time the theater was open, if you were African-American. And that was because when I first got to, to, to the job about four years ago, uh, I took a kind of personal by myself journey through the theater just to kind of wander around. Uh, and I got lost. Uh, basically, on my journey from the first balcony to the second balcony, and then also the journey sort of from the second, from the first balcony to the orchestra level. And the reason that is 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 the building is li literally cutting you off from from accessing the two spaces, and and that experience of getting lost and being pushed, you know, out of one space into another space, and then not understanding where I was, 
uh, was really eye-opening to me of, of you know how this structure literally separated audience members uh, you know from one another and you know for us as an organization you know, it has really been really important that that's not the experience uh, in the present day and Amanda can maybe speak a little bit to this you know there were performers too that would come to the theater who were African-American so this, it wasn't that uh, and, and so so it was a, there was also another experience too for audience members right I think thank you Jeff for reminding us of that that I think there was something really strangely wrong with these incredibly talented African-American performers who had amazing talents. They also experienced a segregated condition when they arrived to, to do their performance, but then they were separated by this enormous horizontal and even vertical dimension from the stage to the second balcony where African-American patrons were there. So it's it is the, the physicality of the space and the, that route, the maze that Jeff talked about. Um, it really does tell you how separated those, those um, cultures were. And, you know, that reminds me also, you know, there, when I got there to the academy in the first year, I had a conversation uh, with an older, older woman who had, had experienced the, the second balcony as, as a black patron, uh, and she had come with her family to see a young uh, African-American pianist who was a prodigy who was playing, and so they had gone to support this performer. And uh, the comment that she said to me was that, that, you know, yes, they would go to the academy occasionally under those circumstances, uh, but that was not their theater. And that really struck me, because I think when we were going to reopen this space, I was reminded that there was a generation of people who were still alive who experienced that space as a segregated space, felt that it wasn't their space. Uh, it wasn't a place that they were fully welcome. And for us at the Academy, our, our mission is service-oriented. It's oriented around serving the entire community. Um, we're successful in that in some regards, but, but every day we have a lot of improvement to make too, right? There are a lot of social barriers that make it difficult to connect to the, uh, and financial barriers that, that, that are there to, that uh, are obstacles for us connecting to the entire community. So it was really important to us that we addressed that early on uh, in our programming and how we messaged that space and what it was and what it means. Jeff, do you have any plans for the future that include Mrs. Stratton, her ticket booth, her story, anything specifically that will involve her? We do. We've commissioned Kevin Chadwick, who's an area painter, who's done some paintings of donors that are hanging in the historic lobby now, uh, to do a painting of Lottie. And the original thought was that it would hang somewhere near Lottie's box office near the segregated ticket booth. Um, but our director of community outreach, Evan Smith, came to me at our, our weekly meetings that we have, and he asked if it would be possible to actually place Lottie by the new ticket booth in the new lobby. And his reasoning around that was that, um, you know, to be quite frank, you know, most of the paintings that are hanging in the space of donors are of, of older white individuals. And we think about the message that we send to an audience member when they walk into the space in regards to, are they welcome? Is this a place for them? We thought that actually honoring Lottie at that main entrance point where everybody would see her uh, was, was maybe more valuable to us as an organization in messaging, but also to honor Lottie 
in the present moment, you know, that we don't want to put her up there anymore because that's not where she should be. <laughs> and so, um, so we're pretty sure we're going to do that. And, uh, the, the painting is just getting started on now. And we had a discussion this week about where we're going to place it. The other thing that we're going to do is that, uh, really fortunate in conversations with, um, with Amanda's team, as well as with the contractors, uh, we, we made a decision that we would go ahead and stretch a projection screen up on the front surface. The, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically the way that that second balcony works, there's like a wall that's in front of the audience, and they look down underneath that wall to see the stage. But if you look straight ahead and you're sitting a seat there, you're looking at a, at a wall. So we had a projection screen stretched across that, and then had wiring done in the back for four or five, I think five projectors that uh, eventually we're hopeful to raise the money around to, to place those projectors there. We're gonna commission uh, a group of artists to create a multimedia experience that will tell the story of, of the segregated South in particular theaters. It will be an educational tool for us when we take people up to that balcony. So, and I know that Lottie will be a part of that, um, I'm positive. So those are, those are two, really specific things that we're doing moving ahead. Oh, the third thing is um, we've established an annual award in Lottie's honor. So at the opening of the theater, um, when Mavis Staples played, we were celebrating the integration of the space and we're pretty vocal about it, pretty direct about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And we established three awards and one of them is the Lottie Payne Stratton Award. And that award goes to an individual who's unheralded, who is providing access to the arts. And the stories that we hear about Lottie although they differ a bit in, in how she did this, but she would allow, she would get, uh, she would allow children to get into the Saturday matinees for free, young African-American kids. And some stories say that she would pretend that she didn't see them and then they kind of run through and get up there. Others say that it was coordinated and planned. Um, but that, that idea that she was providing access to those kids, to those movies, uh, we want to kind of let that live on. And so, uh, so Michelin Hall this year, who's an area artist and photographer, we gave that award to, to her this year and we'll award it to somebody new next year. Thank you both so much for joining me here and for sharing your thoughts. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm joined now by Ms. Doris Waller and the Reverend Carl B. Hutcherson Jr., both lifelong residents of Lynchburg. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having Ms. Waller, let me start with you. Tell me, what do you remember about the Academy Theater before it closed in 1958? Well, we always thought it was a beautiful place to go. And at least twice a week, my Aunt Ida Jones and I, we used to go, especially on Fridays. She would go to the Academy when she got off from work, to rest. And I was looking at the movie, and she was nodding. Every now and then, she would raise up and, and look at the movies. But uh, that's when she was able to do her home work. And also, she had a handicapped son that she had to take care of. So she was up half of the night working at home. But we always went down to the academy. So while you were watching the show, she was getting a little nap. A little nap. Every now and then she would wake up. 
Mm-hmm. What do you remember about the inside of the academy? Do you, do you have any memories of what it was like on the, the inside? The only thing is I remember the steps, the little narrow steps that we had to go up. And there was two lines for tickets, which we did not know why at that time, because we just thought it was the way of life. And uh, Mrs. Stratton, she would sell us tickets, but there was another line for white only. Do you remember, was it marked? Was there a sign that said colored only? That I do not know. But most of the times when they have something like this, you got one line for you for the black and one for the white, that's what it means. In other words, everybody knew which line to get into. That's it was right. just understood. It's understood, that's right. Reverend Hutcherson, when yeah. you were when you were growing up in Lynchburg, where did you go to the movies or to see a live performance? Well, most of the time we went to the Harrison Theater. I only went to the Academy once. Uh, and I went up the steps, like Mr. Waller said, took a seat and sat there for a little while until this rodent ran across my feet. I didn't go back to the academy anymore. Uh, but I used to go to the Harrison at Fifth Street, yes. Uh, and and that, uh, later on, of course, we, uh, if you wanted to come downtown, you came down to the Paramount Mount, uh, to the Warner. Those are the other two theaters downtown. But the same principle applied that Mrs. Waller was talking about. There were, in fact, there were two separate doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Warner, it was a side door on the side. And at, at the Paramount, there was a side door on the front. Now, where were these theaters? You mentioned Warner. Right Paramount. across the street from uh, from the Academy was where one of them was, and the other one was down at the corner of 11th and Main. Do you remember uh, what kind of person Mrs. Stratton was? Do you have any sense of who oh, she, was she was as a person? I mean, she was beautiful. That's all I can say. She was beautiful. She always had a smile. And when you got ready to leave, she always told you good evening or good night and have a blessed day. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about the Harrison Theater. Where was it? Uh, what what did you see there? What was it like? The Harrison was in the 900 block of uh, Martin Luther King, now Martin Luther King Boulevard, 5th Street. And uh, it was just one level, kind of slanted down. Uh, and uh, it was a partition, much as a partition we are sitting in front of. It was a partition behind us. And behind that partition was where they sold the popcorn and uh, and snacks. And all of the kids, of course, loved, loved it's always good buttered popcorn. <laughs> and the snacks were, uh, snacks were great. The children, sometimes, that was their home on Saturdays because the movie said open at 9 a.m. They was in there and stayed to about two or three <laughs> because you could see the movie over and over again. It's real surprising now. Once the move over, you had to come out unless you got another fire. <laughs> so if you stayed in your seat, they didn't and you make stayed you get in out. your seat. Wow. As long as you were quiet. Mm-hmm. So how did people choose which theater to go to? You, you mentioned lots of options mm-hmm. for theaters in Lynchburg. Uh, how, how would you choose? Was it just merely a fact of which show was playing, which movie was playing? Yeah, and, and I, I think after a while, uh, the other two theaters that opened, Paramount and Warner, began to realize that they were losing out on some money by not opening its doors to African-Americans. And uh, so, and on the other hand, when we realized we could come downtown and go to a movie, we started coming, well, even with, even, uh, with the Academy. That's the one, one reason I came to the Academy that one time. 
you could, hey, we can go down to the academy to the movies. And, you know, went that one day. But the, uh, the Warner and the Paramount now opened its doors, and, um, and it was almost as if it was a privilege. And like Ms. Wallace said, it didn't matter whether it was upstairs or downstairs where you saw the movie. It was just the fact that you could come down and see the movie, and if you were old enough and your parents let you come, um, that, was a, that was a real treat. Do you all ever remember African-American performers coming to Lynchburg? For me, kid, most of the people who came were, were musicians, even though uh, there were people like Harry Belafonte who came here, but I remember Fats Domino. Domino oh, yes. Uh, Fats Domino, I was a boy. Uh, and Fats Domino, all of the places that they came and sang or performed were, had to be segregated. Where we are sitting right now, there's a garage like next door. Uh, Jackie Wilson performed in the garage Packed the garage. Charlie Gilmore was the, always the promoter. He promoted all the James Brown, uh, um, Otis Redding, Jackie Wilson, all of those kinds of performers. Etta James. I was trying to think of some of the latest since it's the year of the woman. Uh, <laughs> Etta James. Uh, those, those persons came and performed. If they did not perform here, they performed at the Armory. Mm -hmm. James Brown performed at the Armory. Now, only blacks could go the night that he was here, the nights that he was here, uh, or anybody else, any of the other performers. Uh, and that goes, that is another story in itself about <laughs> uh, desegregation in our city, because the Armory wasn't desegregated until wrestling came on Friday night. Mm -hmm. And we'd go to, to the Armory to watch wrestling. Mm -hmm. and, Blacks had to sit on one side and whites on the other, but it was anyway. So when someone like Otis, so when someone like Otis Redding would come to Lynchburg, you said that he basically only had two venues that were open to mm -hmm. him. You said the Armory and then this garage mm -hmm. here on Commerce Street. Mm -hmm. So Chuck Berry, all of them, all were, of were, them. Were there, yeah, Chuck Berry. Were there any mm -hmm. uh, any other venues here that were open to him? Sportsman's Club or anything else? No, no. Well, well, the Sportsman did open its doors later, but the Sportsman couldn't hold a number of people that the Armory ended up holding or that the garage here, because most folks had to stand up in the garage anyway. They weren't in the seats, mm -hmm. just sit on the rail. Reverend Hutcherson, yeah. have, we, have we missed anything about theaters or performers I, or anything along those lines? I don't, I don't lines? think so much. There were probably other performers who came because there were some who came before I actually started thinking about uh, who, who might be uh, performing in our city. But over the years, the performers have continued to come but, the, uh, but uh, I, I mean, continue to come. Some came up the street at the um, the building on the other side. I can't think of the name of it. Across the other side of the bridge, um, Otis Redding uh, uh, came came there one night and, and packed it. Um, Is that the the little theater or the Ellington? That, the that Ellington. building. The Ellington. Ellington. Uh -huh. Yeah, the Ellington um, came there. Um, um, the guitarist, the blues guitarist. Now he Miles, was, Miles uh BB King. BB King. BB King him. He performed at Glass, of course. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that happened over the years. The schools had the largest venue. Uh, a number of people in Lynchburg have attempted over the years to really try to get a uh a, a, a facility like in Rono. Uh, I was I was on a little committee that um <laughs> that that was hoping to reopen uh, here at the academy and they asked me who I'd like to come and I said Beyonce start big 
and work it out. You know, you never know. Try. You know, you just never know who might come. That's right. <laughs> might not be able to afford them, but they'll come. If you we, afford we, got them, the they'll come. we got the venue now for them. We got the venue now. We got the venue for them. Thank you both so much for joining me today and sharing your memories of Lynchburg. I really appreciate it. American Evolution, Virginia to America, 1619 to 2019, celebrates the 400-year history of the Commonwealth of Virginia through public events, legacy projects, and initiatives like this podcast American Evolution commemorates the people and historical events that occurred in Virginia and continue to shape who we are in the Commonwealth today. For more information about the American Evolution celebration, visit AmericanEvolution2019.com. To learn more about the Little Did They Know podcast and for photos, extras, and other information relating to today's episode, visit LittleDidTheyKnow.com.